Indeed, we are great neighbors sharing the Great Lake. Kathy has agreed to joining the podcast for a future episode. I'm Kathy Green. I'm the executive director of the Wisconsin Maritime Museum here in Manitowoc, Wisconsin. We're the State Maritime Museum located on the shores of beautiful Lake Michigan. And we tell the story of Wisconsin's maritime history. The maritime landscape that's part of this larger Great Lakes maritime story. I'm a marine archaeologist, been working up here in the Great Lakes for about 20 years, both in archaeology, but also in history and cultural resource management. And I'm very excited to be able to talk to you today about the new designation of Wisconsin Shipwreck Coast National Marine Sanctuary. Uh, This is a marine protected area akin to a national park. Different program, but that's probably what people are are more familiar with. And the National Marine Sanctuary protects a collection of historic shipwrecks of exceptional archaeological, recreational, and national significance. Okay, so Wisconsin now is part of the larger national maritime sanctuaries. And is all of the lakeshore part of that? The National Marine Sanctuary Program, including our newest one here in Wisconsin, has 15 sites around the country. And actually, a few of those sites are way out in the Pacific Ocean. Uh, so the, the Northwest Hawaiian Islands, Rose Atoll, places out there, but most of them are on the East and West Coast, two of them now in the Great Lakes. Wisconsin Shipwreck Coast is 962 square miles in the south, just south of Port Washington, all along the coastline to just north of the Kiwani County line, Manitowoc and Kiwani counties, and then out to the middle of the lake, which is the border between Wisconsin and Michigan. Again, that is just under a thousand square miles. Listeners will know of these two landmarks on Lake Michigan. That is the city of Milwaukee and Door County. Are either of those locations within the sanctuary? You know, those are good reference points. The sanctuary boundaries don't touch either Milwaukee or Door County, but if you take two areas and just shrink them in just a little bit, that 200-plus square mile coastline between those two places is exactly where the sanctuary is. Main features of the shoreline. I know there is at least one lighthouse, and I don't know if there are other important structures, but what does the shoreline look like? Is it a lot of bluffs, or is it a sandy, rocky shoreline? All of the above. All of the above. So this side of Lake Michigan is generally more rocky, cobbly than the other side over in Michigan, where you have these big sand dunes like Sleeping Bear Dunes, Silver Lake Dunes, these huge sand dunes on the other side. This side of the lake is generally more rocky. So a lot of our beaches around here are cobble. However, there are areas of sand beach and certainly a good stretch of the coastline is on bluffs. Uh, So you have some elevation between that lake level and where a lot of these places are. There are a number of port cities along in here in here as well. 
nothing is as big and urban as, say, Milwaukee or Green Bay, but the cities of Port Washington, Sheboygan, Manitowoc, and Two Rivers, uh, where you are, are the, the main communities and all of those historic port cities within the sanctuary. You just made a big mistake. You just informed the millions of my listeners that I live in Two Rivers. Well, I'm just hoping the additional tourism of all your fl fans flocking to this area will, will help the museum. There are very many listeners in Wisconsin, and I'm hoping that this conversation will promote some of them to take action and park in the parking lot in front of your building. The idea of heritage tourism, uh, visiting places to learn about the history, to kind of educate yourself and have an appreciation for how these areas came to be, that's, that's an important thing. That's an important part of what we do at the museum. And that's really a important piece of what the Marine Sanctuary Program is trying to do. Uh, a combination, and you know, this, the mission of the museum and the sanctuary really dovetail well together. So in looking at both protection, we also couple that with promotion. We want people to visit. We want them to visit safely to be able to gain an appreciation. So they'll have an interest, a preservation ethic in, in wanting to preserve these stories, preserve these archaeological sites, and also help us at the museum. But what is the sanctuary protecting? The National Marine Sanctuary Program protects these unique areas, these special areas that are designated by Congress as areas of either natural, biological, archaeological, or just aesthetic value. There's something about these places or a combination of things uh, that make these of national significance. Here at Wisconsin Shipwreck Coast, what is protected, the only resource really that has an extra level of protection are the shipwrecks, those cultural resources. Now, if you were down in the Florida Keys, the coral reefs, are also protected resource. Off the coast of Boston, Stellwagen Bank National Marine Sanctuary protects migrant humpback whale population as well as the fisheries on Stellwagen Banks. So I think something that's important to point out is that just because something is a marine sanctuary doesn't mean that it's exclusionary. Uh, it doesn't mean that people have to stay away. In fact, as I mentioned before, part of what the sanctuary program does is encourage people to visit and visit in a way that's safe, responsible to, to the resource in there. So whether that's if you're going to go scuba diving down in the Florida Keys, that you know the rules and regulations of not touching, taking, damaging the coral reefs, same thing here. The regulations are to protect the wrecks. So you can dive the wrecks. Uh, what you do need is information, right? Shipwreck mooring buoys uh, to tell you where the sites are. Regulations about not anchoring on sites, not taking anything from sites, not moving things around or damaging the wrecks themselves. And along this shoreline, I'm assuming there are a number of wrecks most wrecks, I think, in Lake Michigan must be along shorelines as opposed to being out in the middle of a lake. Now, that's a really great observation. 
I will challenge that observation just a little bit. Yes, absolutely. Uh, if you look at a map of where these sites are, and there are 36 known sites in this thousand square mile box, 21 of those are listed on the National Register of Historic Places. But there are an additional 60 sites probable through historic records, through newspaper accounts, lightkeeper logs, different historical accounts. We know that there are probably about 60 more shipwrecks in this box. When looking at the map of the box of where these sites are, many of them are along the shoreline. Ships wreck for a reason, right? One of the reasons they wreck is they run into something and oftentimes that's running into the bottom, you know, running into the shoreline, either through a storm where they're driven ashore, through an accident where they lose steerage, where they can't control where they're going and they wash onto shore, through errors in navigation, or certainly another reason these vessels kind of went aground, went ashore. However, there are quite a few wrecks out in deep water. And in many cases, these are the really extraordinarily well-preserved sites. Now, why would a ship wreck out in the middle of the lake where there's 100, 200, 300 feet of water um, collisions? And that a surprising number of vessels uh, were in accidents where a collision was involved. Uh, and, and that's because the volume of shipping on the Great Lakes uh, in kind of the the era we call the shipwreck century between about 1920 or 1930, or I'm sorry, 1820, 1830, uh, all the way up to the 1920s, 1930s, you had thousands of vessels plying the Great Lakes. And just like out in the ocean, there are shipping lanes. And so many vessels out in the lakes, as I mentioned before, uh, things like fog or, you know, storms could cause vessels not to, to be able to see very far, and um, uh, collision, collisions did happen, as did accidents uh, like fire. Uh, early steamers uh, were still had wooden hulls, but they were using steam engines. So you had these open fire boilers uh, that uh, could have mishaps, explosions, things like that. So fire, collision, and then also, of course, storms. Um, Patrick, as you know, we have some some challenging weather here, uh, especially on what we call the shoulder seasons, right? Uh, October, November, December, and and storms could capsize a vessel, filling it with water and having it sink very quickly in deep water. And and really, when you look at the historic record and see when these vessels sank, you can really see a grouping of shipwrecks of vessels that were pushing the the edges of the shipping season, right? So, you know, in the winter, the lakes sometimes freeze over. Certainly it becomes uh, too treacherous for things like a, a, a 130 foot long wooden schooner to be out there in the winter. The ports freeze up, so there's nowhere for them to go. However, uh, these captains and these owners would push the edges of those seasons to try to get one more run in, uh, one more trip down to, to make some money before the winter came in. And, you know, sometimes their judgment uh, led to some, some really unfortunate situations. 
Well, you know, I think if, especially if a lot of your listeners aren't from the Great Lakes region, folks don't understand how large these lakes are, right? So not only can you not see the other side you know, when you stand and, and, and look east, this is, this is not a small body of water and it's, it, it can be treacherous. And in some ways, it can be more treacherous than the oceans. If you think about the oceans and the waves on the ocean, you have these big, long, uh, waves that build and swell and vessels can kind of ride up and down those big waves. Here on the Great Lakes, we have shorelines that even though it's 100, 120, 150 miles across, the waves are going to hit one shore, ricochet back. You're not going to, you're going to have shorter, more kind of peaked waves that it's harder for vessels to, to navigate on. So again, this was these were treacherous waters, and whether you were sailing on them or flying over them, uh, they're big stretches with n nothing in between, which did over the years, whether uh, it was small boats, whether it was huge freighters like the Edmund Fitzgerald, which is a story that most people are familiar with, uh, or planes. You know, these are big areas where, where accidents can occur. As you well know, um, the, the lake is a huge generator of our weather here as well, right? Uh, in the winter, we could get lake effect snowstorms. Again, these huge bodies of, of water putting moisture into the air. Uh, or, you know, just getting these huge Arctic blasts or really, you know, cold, bitter winds coming across uh, all the way across the Midwest. Um, it really is a driver for uh, the weather systems in this whole upper Midwest region. Yeah, my wife and I moved up here a couple of years ago, and we're still getting used to everything related to Lake Michigan. And we live on the East Twin River, and we have the first pontoon boat ever made. It was on the Nile River. When we go through the harbor, if there's the slightest wave, we turn that boat around and head for calmer water. But what's really interesting, though, is many times we would hear the noise of an interstate, all the traffic, all the rubber on the road, or perhaps some distant factories. And, of course, we knew that neither of those contributed to the sound we were hearing. And it took quite a while for us to understand that the waves crashing on the shore were passing up the harbor and into our river, the East Twin River, and coming down about a mile. I live uh, a few blocks from the lake uh, as well. And boy, I mean, you can hear those waves, depending on, you know, which way the wind's coming from and the waves are coming in, you can hear the waves pounding. I mean, this is a, this is a force um, uh, uh, around here. But it's also why this part of the country developed. Right. It's a it's a, a transportation highway. Um, it, it was one of the busiest waterways in the world uh, in the 1800s uh, in our country or, or anywhere else for that matter. Uh, and cities like Milwaukee, Chicago, Duluth, Detroit, uh, all of these places are only here because they had that access to to that highway uh, that people and goods should come in and the natural resources and eventually the the goods coming out of the midwest 
um, could could make it back east or even down the Mississippi River once the Chicago Canal was in place. The St. Joseph River and the Kankakee River were at one time one river, and vessels could come in from Europe in the 1670s, all the way through the Great Lakes. But there wasn't any way to keep that vessel going west to the Mississippi River. However, this St. Joseph River was the route. It allowed vessels to get from the lake through the river to the Illinois River and finally to the Mississippi River, the Gulf, into the ocean. Yeah, and those portages, right? Places where you could, uh, if you had a small vessel, kind of jump from one water system to the next, or eventually these linked systems that got you through to the Mississippi and further west. It really, again, made this part of the country crossroads, the crossroads of the United States. It's really an extraordinary thing. Now, and we're getting now into what we can talk about in the next episode, which is the story we tell at the museum, which is the story of Wisconsin maritime history, which is not just the Great Lakes, although we're, we're on two absolutely fantastic lakes, Lake Superior and Lake Michigan, but also our river systems, the Mississippi to the west and the rivers that cut through Wisconsin uh, really helped to form these communities, uh, were very, very important to the development of our country. And of course, all the inland rivers and lakes as well that are so important for the recreational value. I mean, even now, you know, I think that's what a lot of people might recognize Wisconsin as, this place to recreate, to fish, to canoe and kayak and kind of enjoy that up north woodsy environment. So again, it's all a really, really interesting watershed that kind of makes us who we are. You made reference to another. So that is Thunder Bay National Marine Sanctuary. It's been around for, gosh, about 20 years now, and it protects another collection of, uh, it's based out of Alpena, Michigan. So if you think of the, the mitten of Michigan, it's, it's kind of on the pointer finger, uh, fingernail, right, right off there, about an hour south of the Mackinac Bridge on the Lake Huron side. Uh, an absolutely beautiful part of the country. If you're a, a boater, it's a great place to kind of take your sailboat and kind of hang around there and then go up to the islands in the Straits of Mackinac. Uh, but Thunder Bay or a similar situation that we have here is that it is right on the shipping lanes of everything that's going to come or go on that east-west route to the big cities of Chicago, Milwaukee, Green Bay, Duluth, has to go right by Alpena. And certainly northern Lake Huron can be just as treacherous, if not more, than our mid-Lake Michigan coast. And so there's a collection of fantastic shipwrecks. Now, here and here's the thing I want to make sure uh, I mention and get across. The reason that marine sanctuaries were designated in both of these places is not just because there were our wrecks there, uh, but these wrecks are extraordinarily well preserved. The cold, fresh water of the Great Lakes is incredible for, I mean, really uh, almost freezing these wrecks in time. So we're talking about the uh, vessels from the 1840s, 1850s that are sitting on the bottom. Some of these deep wrecks that haven't had the wave action, hadn't have seen a lot of divers over the years to disturb them. 
Some of these deep sites are basically frozen in time. They're time capsules. They're museums on the bottom of the lake that contain the entire material culture of that last voyage and the folks on that last voyage. So from an archaeological point of view, they're absolutely extraordinary. For example, a, a shipwreck from the 1870s can be sitting on the bottom, sitting upright, with the mast still standing, with the lifeboat on the rail, with the cargo still inside, and everything that was on board that day can be sitting right there. If you study those wrecks carefully, you can piece together a pretty detailed story of what life was like on that vessel. And and I'll add this point here that we say in studying these sites, this is somebody's worst day ever, right? A, a ship sinking, whether everybody made it off safely or not. Uh, this was somebody's worst day. But what these vessels do, these collection of, there's about 70 some known sites in Thunder Bay and the 36 known sites here, what these vessels do is they tell the story of the thousands and thousands of vessels that made these trips successfully. They're tangible pieces of the past that link us to a specific time, a specific place, and a specific journey. So that's what I find so fascinating. You are a marine archaeologist, correct? Well, it's funny because I'm, I'm glad you asked because, you know, say you're a uh, marine archaeologist or nautical archaeologist and inevitably somebody says, oh, I always wanted to study whales and dolphins. Well, you just put marine in front of anything and, and I think the last part gets lost. But the, the last part's the important part, uh, archaeologist. So a marine archaeologist studies the material remains of things left behind. And in this case, um, things underwater or things having to do with the maritime landscape of what we're studying. So to do that, any archaeologist will tell you going out into the field, being on a site certainly is the most exciting part of what you do, but you spend um, not nearly as much time in the field and on the site as you do doing research. Uh, ahead of time. So all these wrecks we're talking about are in the historic period. So when things were written down, right, this is all 1800s and early 1900s, you're, you're going to do a lot of historical research to find out as much you can about these sites ahead of time, especially if you find something that's unidentified. So you're going to gather as much information as you can ahead of time. So when you're on the site, you know what clues that that you need to be looking for. Uh, Of course, the most exciting part of being a marine archaeologist is that you need to scuba dive to to get to these sites, whether they're in 10 feet of water or 200 feet of water. That method of getting on site is where you're going to spend a lot of your time training to learn not only how to scuba dive, but be able to work when you're on site. The deeper it is, kind of the more challenging it is. And here in the Great Lakes, whether it's April or whether it's August, the water's cold. So uh, wearing dry suits and protective gear, that'll keep you safe and warm while you're spending time on the bottom is is a, another key part. Uh, I grew up on the Ohio River. 
Uh, so the there was a maritime component there, although I, you know, it's not nothing I, I really actively sought out or um, really thought about. Uh, but uh, you know, there's still a, an active steamboat um, uh, in Louisville, Kentucky, the Belle of Louisville that. Uh, I went on a, a bunch of times when I was little, and I spent all my summers at a sailing camp, an aquatic camp down in Kentucky, and uh, kind of that sailing and maritime interest or angle was was kind of there from the beginning, but it really solidified when I studied abroad in college over in England, and I was studying history, and I was studying art, and interested in working in museums, but I also was on the university sailing team. And, you know, a lot of my personal interest and also my study came together to really go into, you know, combine to this museum, maritime, archaeology, and, and water field. Kathy, I think you've probably enjoyed this episode discussion as much as I have. And I think you're going to hold to your promise to come back for a future episode. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. This is this has been really fun. And um, heck, I'll talk. I'll talk shipwreck and maritime history anytime. And I play just a very small role, but I take mine as a serious role. And that is, I look for opportunities to bring important subjects and guests to the listeners. So I just look at myself as a conduit of that sort of thing. Well, you know what? I, I, I feel like I do the same thing. I'm, I'm here to, I'm, I love these stories and this history so much. And so, you know, it's my job to help convey that uh, to, to other folks so they can appreciate it and care about it, which will kind of, you know, Fire this groundswell of support for not only the museum, but just the, the preservation and interest in, in these stories and this history. Because I want to encourage people to come to the museum, I'm going to ask you how far the museum is from Milwaukee or from Green Bay. These are markers that people know. Yeah, so... Uh, Manitowoc uh, is about an hour and let's call it an hour and 20 minutes north of Milwaukee and just about a half hour south of Green Bay. So uh, 43 is the main interstate that runs right up and down the coast. So we're pretty handy to get to and lots of people vacation up in Door County. We're, we're a great place to jump off the highway visit the Maritime Museum, and then head up along the coast to Door County. I would encourage anybody who's traveling up this way to get off that interstate and, and travel some of these coastal roads. They're absolutely beautiful. I, I think people don't realize that people think of uh, out on the, the Pacific, out on the West Coast, those coastal highways that are so gorgeous. Well, we have those right here in the Midwest. Uh, so explore that or... And this is uh, another thing that is important to us at the museum and in Manitowoc is we actually have another highway in the summertime. The SS Badger is uh, a historic car ferry that comes across from Ludington, Michigan every day and brings folks uh, across. And, you know, you can get right off the ferry and the museum's right across the way. You can't miss it. We're the ones with the, the big submarine parked out back. Indeed you will. Kathy, thank you very much. This has been delightful. 
Thanks, Patrick. This was really fun. 